If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 21. On our journey through this Gospel, we have entered into the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This particular event is taking place on Wednesday. Jesus will be crucified on Friday. And this text enters us in to uh, some prophecies about future things, about the destruction of Jerusalem and about the second coming of Christ. And we're going to get into more of that next week. Today we're going to take the first three verses. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? I also want you to look at verse 34. I want to read kind of the entrance into these last things discussion. And I want you to see the application at the end. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth but stay awake at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. As we look and consider the times and the signs, that's mainly what we're going to do next week, we can't forget the brackets that led in to this discussion which give practicality to the teaching of the last things. Charles Spurgeon told a story of Archaeus, uh, a Grecian uh, despot, and here's what he says about Archaeus. Uh, he says, Have you ever heard the story of Archaeus who was going to a feast. And on the way, a messenger brought him a letter and seriously imported him to read it. It contained tidings of a conspiracy that had been formed against him that he should be killed at the feast. He took the letter and he put it into his pocket. 
In vain the messenger urged that it was a serious, uh, concerning serious matters. Serious matters tomorrow, said Archaeus. Feasting tonight. That night, that night, the dagger reached his heart while he had about him the warning which, had he heeded, would have adverted the peril. Alas, too many men say serious things tomorrow. That can be you, and that can be me. A dagger to the heart is a serious thing. But it's not the most serious thing. There are more serious matters that we ought to consider than just physical death. God has given us warnings. In verse 34 of Luke 21 that we just read, Let's just consider this. After he lays out the things to come in judgment, both on Jerusalem and on this earth in the second coming of Christ, his application is watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. I looked up that word in the Greek. It means drunken behavior, which is completely without moral restraint. Now he's going to say, not being weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, a different word. Don't be weighed down with being drunk, and especially don't be weighed down with the type of life that is let go of moral restraint to just fill your flesh. And then he says, and the cares of this life or the anxieties of this life. Be, watch yourselves. You might not be a drunkard. That might be with what you struggle with. Or you might be one that struggles with being weighed down with the anxieties of this life. And Jesus is saying, watch yourselves. Be careful. And as we study the end times, which interests many, much discussion Many radio shows are about the in-between things, the signs and the times. And while they're talking and trying to figure out the time and the signs, how many of them are watching themselves? Because what does Jesus say? And that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. How many of us look with interest into the end times and 
we talk and we discuss, and yet all this discussion is bracketed. That the fool is the one who isn't watching themselves. They might be watching themselves in this way. I think I won that argument. I think I'm on the right side of this view or that view. And so let's let the brackets inform our study of these things which are important. The book of Revelation begins with saying the one who reads and understands is blessed. There is a blessing in studying the end. And there's also application as Christ is teaching us. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Stay awake at all times. Praying. You see that? Are you ready? Are you praying at all times that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man? That's the question. Are you ready to stand before Him? So in the next couple of weeks, you might wrangle with me about the timing and interpretation of the last things that I attempt to humbly lay out. But I promise you, I'll be committed to be less concerned with the arrangement of your end time view and more interested in asking you, how are you living your life? Textually, as a pastor, that's how I should be. Let's talk about it. But if we're going to talk about that, let's talk about your life. And let's talk about my life. So what got us to this point in time in Jesus' ministry? He's been teaching in the temple for three days. He cleared the temple out. He took control. They couldn't violently just take him down right away. So they attempted to trap him in his words, which failed miserably. He ended up trapping the leadership in Israel. And then uh, we saw as Jesus is leaving the temple, or before he leaves the temple, he sees a widow. After he warns the crowds, beware the scribes who are hypocrites. They're doing what they do to be seen by others. They don't really love you and they don't really love God. After he said that, he saw a widow putting some coins into the offering and he said her two little coins she's put in more than all the rest you combine all the others that have been putting in coins she's put in more because they gave 
out of their abundance, but she gave everything. All that she had, the day's wage, her opportunity to buy food that day, she gave. And then they begin to walk out of the temple and the disciples are speaking. Look at verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So let me just say a little bit about the temple. This temple has been being renovated. It, it, it started by Herod the Great 20 years before Jesus was born. So at this point in time, this project has been going on for 50 years. In fact, all the way up until its destruction in 70 AD, uh, it was continuing to be made more glorious and better. The east side, just imagine this, the, the entire temple is constructed with this white marble stone that is polished. Huge. The highest point in Jerusalem. White marble. And on the east side, there's gold plates that cover the whole east side of the main structure where the Holies of Holies is, the, the main temple structure, so that when the sun comes up, from the east, the sun hits that gold side. And as you're from the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, I would love to see this someday. The sun hits it in the morning and it just shines. It, stand, it stood out over Israel. Obviously, the temple isn't there. You can still look over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. But it was a wonder to see. Uh, we read from uh, Stein. He says, after Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., those returning from exile under Zerubbabel and Haggai replaced it with a smaller temple built on the same site. This structure was inferior to Solomon's temple. You can read about that, uh, Haggai 2, 1-3, and was completed about uh, 515 B.C. under Herod the Great, or, or in, in 515 B.C. Under Herod the Great, the temple experienced massive reconstruction, which began in 20 B.C. and continued until uh, AD 63. This new temple exceeded even Solomon's temple in beauty and size and justifiably could have been included among uh, the seven wonders of the world. Josephus, the historian in those days said the temple loomed over the city like a snow-clad mountain. You looked at the city, you saw this white temple that adorned the city. 
the stones, the marble stones that were in this temple, some of them were just beyond our comprehension. Some of them were single stones were 40 feet long, 12 feet thick both ways that were grooved out and and perfectly uh, smoothed out with grooves so that one would fit on top of the other. Have you ever seen a structure with such strength and beauty as that temple must have been? And then you see in the text, and it says it's adorned with noble stones and offerings. So people would come and give votive gifts, vows. They'd make a vow to God and then they would give a gift. Herod gave a six-foot structure, or or, uh, not structure, carving of a cluster of grapes on a vine. Six feet tall, grapes this big, solid gold hung in there. Riches upon riches that people gave to the temple. And as Jesus and the disciples walked out, he heard them speaking about the stones and the riches. And you've got to understand the pride. You know, as, as an American, we can go to Mount Rushmore and, and hear about our country and become, by the end of it, it's like, man, thank God for the United States of America. Thank God for the courage of these men. I'm, I'm proud to be an American. You can, you can feel that. You look at that monument and, and, and you feel proud of what you're a part of. And you can imagine Jerusalem that has walls built around them. Walls upon walls upon walls so that if anyone would attack, it would seem impossible to destroy the people of Israel. And then at the center of it all is this temple. And so you can imagine as they looked at it, it just seems like, look at us. Look at who we are. Look at our strengths. And Jesus says in verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We've already talked a lot about this. We, we, We talked about how in 70 AD the Romans came in and it took them months to defeat Israel. Israel won a lot of skirmishes during those months because of their structures and their weapons and their people and their pride. And even how Josephus says, you know, it's not Scripture, this is a historian. He says someone threw a burning torch over the wall and it made it into the temple and the temple burned. And then when the temple burned, the heart of the people melted and they were ultimately taken over. 
And what they did is they built scaffolding around all the walls and around the structures, kind of built a, a temporary wall, and they filled, like if, if this is uh, the stone walls, uh, they build walls here and they filled the center with kindling. And then they set it on fire. And as the fire got so hot, the stones began to crumble down. And as they burned Jerusalem down, for months and months, they sifted through the rocks and the rubble to find the gold and the treasures uh, that were there. But in the eyes of the disciples, it would have seemed impossible. Impossible! that Jerusalem would be overcome, that temple would be torn down, that not one stone would be left upon another. Now there's a debate whether he's being uh, using hyperbole there. I mean, he, he, he sure could be. And the reason why some people want to say that is they say, well, there is, there is these big foundation stones that you can still see. And... Other commentators point out, yeah, that was like the retaining wall. Uh, the temple itself above the ground literally was sifted through <laughs> by the people and, and torn down. And the weight of this message needs to be upon the site of what the disciples saw and what Jesus saw. Because Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, sees different than we would see and values different than we would value. The disciples knew Zechariah 12, 8 and 9. They, they knew verses like this. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God and, the, and like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So they read these future promises where God will protect Jerusalem, where God would protect the people, but they didn't know timing. They didn't know when that was going to happen. It would have seemed impossible. It would have seemed wrong for Jesus to say what he said. As for the things that you see. See, the Apostle Paul talked like this also, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 4.17 is a familiar passage probably for you. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that you see will be gone. 
They will be. And the things that will be for all eternity, you don't see now. And so Jesus is helping them have perspective about how silly it is to root our hope in the things of this world, in the sparkly things that catch the attention of the world. You remember back in Luke 16, in verse 13, when Jesus taught that no servant can serve two masters, he'll either hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't treasure money and treasure God. You can't. You only get to serve one of them. Only one of them gets to be what you see. You don't get to see two things at the same time. And you say, well then what's wrong with me? Because my eyes see money sometimes and not God. That's right. There's still remaining sin that sets the eyes on the things of this world. That's why the songwriters talk about our uh, hearts that tend to wander from the Lord. How's it go? Tend to leave the God I love. Yeah. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But at the same time, you can't treasure God and you can't treasure money. And then he says this. And then Luke tells us, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They don't like that teaching. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What man sees and says, that's great, is an abomination in the sight of God. He sees different. He knows what lasts. Spurgeon speaks of this world as as the cloud land. Everything here turns to mist. Everything will vanish. The fool lives his life for, for this cloud land, for this land of vapors that'll vanish in a moment. And Jesus is continually trying to help them see with different eyes. And part of the, one of the things he wants them to see is judgment. There is a judgment that'll come upon Israel because they've rejected their Messiah. He will judge them. He will judge them uh, just in Luke because of their hypocrisy, Luke 11. Because they oppressed the poor, chapter 18. Because they rejected the Messiah, 13 in chapter 20. Because they missed the day of visitation. 
because they rejected the gospel, because they end up slaying the Son of Man, and they don't get away with it. And their children and their grandchildren don't get away with it. In less than 40 years, Jerusalem is ransacked and the temple is torn down. Even though that would seem like a fairy tale in the eyes of the people. I suppose the Titanic is an example we have of this. How could you be more safe than on a boat like this? I suppose the United States of America could also be one of these things in our life that we've looked at our dominance and our army and it's easy to start putting hope, start telling ourselves narratives that we can't justify telling about our future. Robert Stein says this, all too often one is enamored with the technical and artistic beauty of an object and is not aware of the spiritual poverty, blindness, and even evil that may underline it. Jesus saw the latter and not so much the physical beauty of the temple. And in, in, in his understanding of the widow's two very small copper coins, uh, were more precious to God than all this. So Jesus looked at everyone giving an offering and he saw different. And then he looks at the temple and he sees differently. Charles Spurgeon says, that only worth my having, uh, or that only worth my having which I can have forever, that only is worth my grasping which death cannot tear out of my hand. Is that how you value your life? That it's only worth having something if I can have it forever? And you're going to build your life into only the things that death cannot pry out of our hands? Spurgeon also says, I've come to reckon that nothing is worth seeking but after that which will survive after my death. Well, now Jesus is just a few days away from his death. He's already reckoned how he values his own life and keeping it in this world. He could have kept it in this world. He could have avoided death, but he valued something much more glorious and such something much more eternal. And so you can see in your notes, identify and repent your of your foolish wonder. What are the things in your life that have captivated your sight? That have captivated your thinking? The place that takes your time and your money? Where? What is it? Ask yourself, if it's foolish wonder that is driving you down that road, repent of it. Invest in the things that will last 
forever. Where do you place your hope? Is Christ your vision? Be thou my vision. In one sense, we always ought to see Christ. But as we see Christ, we see like Christ. Is he your eyes? Is he, is he the teacher of your soul to show you what matters? That's the question in this text. Are you living in light of the fact that judgment is coming? Judgment's coming on Jerusalem, and Christ is going to come. All Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how they've lived after they've been born again with all the things that Christ has so graciously given you. He's given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit of God. He's given you the church. He's given you the scripture. He's given you the wisdom of all those who have lived before you that's been recorded in His Scripture. He's given you the world to look at and use common sense and recognize who God is. And at the end of our life, we will stand before Him not to plead our case as to why we should get into heaven because we have no other plea other than Christ that's been crucified for me. That's all I have. That, that, that's the only grounds of my salvation. But then God says, your salvation was real though. You really got a new birth. You really got the Holy Spirit. You really had Sovereign Grace Church. You really had these brothers. You really had the job that I gave you. You really had the talents that I gave you to earn that money how did you do? How did you live? Did you build with wood, hay, and straw that when it's tested by fire, it'll be burned up in the end? Or did you build well? Were you seen with clear vision? Were you living for what really matters? Jesus saw different. The disciples saw the children and they saw an annoyance. Jesus said, let them come to me. I'm not like you guys. You're all worried about pride. You're all worried about your selfish plans. You're all concerned about the next meal and look at all these people to love and serve. And so Jesus saw differently. God plans differently. Jesus Christ, it's just these verses are too common for us. Luke 2, 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a feeding trough. God does it different than we do it. John tells us in 1 John 2.15, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. 
Then he sums the world up in three things. Ready? For all that is in the world, this encompasses all of it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world runs on three things. The lust of the flesh. I feel like getting drunk tonight. I feel like looking at porn right now. I feel like eating beyond what my flesh needs. I feel like binge-watching some show and throwing away six hours of my day. Paul speaks of the lost as those that are enslaved to the lust of the flesh. They don't have a choice. Whatever your urge is, you just got to do it. But Jesus Christ freed you, Christian, from the lust of the flesh. Yes, you can still go do that, but you don't have to. You're not a slave anymore. He's giving you liberty to not go sin more. He's giving you liberty to get out of this slavery that's ruining your life, that's making you selfish, that's, that, that's causing you to uh, love yourself and not even see other people. That's what pornography is. It's all selfish. No one's blessed by it. No one gets anything out of it, but you. Only people are hurt from it. Your life, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God not only says, don't go get drunk. Don't unite your body to a prostitute. What he's saying is, you don't have to anymore. You don't have to be enslaved anymore to that. God created you to love Him and love other people. And then He says in the world is the lust of the eyes. That's envy. So we live off, here's what I need right now, but then we sit here and say, what don't I have that I need? The whole world functions like this. This is the world we live in. Because where there's envy, where there's the lust of the eyes, there's no thanksgiving to God. There's no accounting as to what God has already given you. There's frustration because of what God has not given you. And then the pride of life, looking good in front of others, having status in this world. This is what the Pharisees struggled with. They struggled with all these things. And this is what our world is on this like it's crack cocaine. What do people think of me? Anxiety after anxiety after anxiety. What do people think of me? What's my status? Where do I line up in this world? That's why Jesus spent half of the Sermon on the Mount to help them see what God sees. He, he, he says things like this. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces 
that their fasting may be seen by others. For truly, I tell you, they receive their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You are made to be seen, but you're made to be seen by God. And that that be enough for you and for me. Think about it. Someone who noticed something you did and gave you a compliment a week ago. Can you live off that today? No. You need another like. You need another affirmation. You need another, oh, I appreciate you. I'm so thankful for you. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. But what if the Heavenly Father has freed a person up so much they don't have to be enslaved to their flesh anymore. They, they can sit there and be thankful in awe and worship and say, look at what you've given me that I don't deserve. I deserve hell. And you've given me so much. You've given me health. You've given me a family. You've put me in Aberdeen, South Dakota. You could sit here and you could worship. And what about the person that is so free that they don't need to be seen by others. Christ came to free you, to die on the cross, to give you a different way to look at life, to take out your heart, to give you different taste buds. Selfishness doesn't taste good after being born again. Guilt starts to fill the believer, as they live and love the world, live for the world and love it, guilt begins to rise. And so, my plead with you, believer, is come into the freedom and the liberty of Christ. See Him. Set your eyes on things that are above and things that aren't on this earth. Because when your day comes, the judgment seat of Christ, here's what, here's what happens. All, you, all your time wasting, all your valuing, loving of this world, whatever that was, that'll be burned up. That'll be gone. Whatever's left, you will get rewarded for for all eternity. It's incredible. <laughs> for all eternity, you'll be rewarded for what's left. And so now it's investment opportunity. That's what this life in this world is. We ought to see the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't despair in our sin. We confess it. We repent of it. We go to Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the upward call of Christ. So we live this life of of recognizing here's the cross, but then here's this day. I've been bought by Jesus Christ. I have the privilege to be a steward. Father, help me see and value the right things so that I'm not foolish wasting my time and my life on the things that don't matter. And I can tell you when you come, if you die a slow death where you have time to think about your death, you have time to 
think about your life. There's no guarantee that's how you'll die. Some of us could be gone at the end of this day. But if you die a slow death and you think about your life, all these trinkets, everything that sparkles, that seems so important, you will have such wisdom in that moment as you see your own life in this world like a vapor. And you'll wish you would have invested and seen the world through Christ's eyes. And if you're going to funnel that down, your life would be defined by loving God and loving man. And so that's my prayer. That you are taught by what Jesus is teaching the disciples as they look at the temple. And that I am taught by that. That we remind ourselves of the things that really matter and the things that will last. And if you're not a believer, if you're sitting here saying, I don't even know what you're really talking about. What you need to know is this. Death came into this world because of sin. It brought physical death and it brought eternal death. Physical death is where your spirit leaves your body. Death is separation. Spirit leaves the body. A physical death has happened. The second death that the Bible talks about is where a sinner is separated from God for all eternity. Forever. And the question is, Who's going to take care of these two problems? You can't dig yourself out of the problem. You sinned against a holy, eternal God. It's not how many sins you've done. It's whom you sinned against. He's eternal. One sin against an eternal God, eternal punishment. So how are you going to get out of that hole? How are you going to get out of that problem? Well, I got good news for you. For God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, how can that be? Because His Son went to a cross to carry your sin there so that God could punish Him on the cross for your sins so that you don't have to bear that wrath. He dies your death for you. And the perfect life He lives sinlessly, He gives to those who trust in Him so that when you face God, you have all your sins wiped away in perfect righteousness in your account. And the one who takes your place can't be your best friend. You might have a friend that'd be willing to die for you, but it wouldn't do any good. And the reason why it wouldn't do you any good is because the one that takes your place needs to have the exact same worth as the one whom you sinned against, God Himself. And that Son that God sent is the eternal Son of God. He's God Himself. The exact same worth of the Father is the worth of the Son. And He's the one that's died in your place. And not only will He give you everlasting life, but He'll give you a, a new set of glasses, a new set of eyes, new taste buds. It's called being born again. He'll put His Spirit inside your life in, in, inside your soul so that Jesus can say to you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We're going to see next week, He's going to say, when they, when they put you on trial for your faith, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll speak for you. It's incredible. 
that all can be yours if you'll admit, if you'll confess your sins, say, God, my sin isn't a mistake. It's rebellion against your throne. And what I deserve is eternal punishment. And I realize there's no hope in sin, so I'm going to turn from sin. I'm finding my hope in Christ because He is the way, the truth, and the life. All wisdom is bound up in Christ. That's who I'm going for. Cling to Him. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You that when when He lived on this earth, He valued different things than we would value. Otherwise, He would never have died for us. Father, give us wisdom. Help all of our life be lived for the things that will last. And even the things that we buy, there's nothing wrong with buying things. Your Word tells us that You've given us everything uh, to enjoy. But You want us to even use all those things as tools of eternal things. Father, let us do nothing merely for this world. Let us calculate our lives against eternity. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.